Hi, this is John Jackson Miller, author of Star Trek Takedown and Star Trek Titan Absent Enemies. You're listening to The Captain's Table. Welcome to The Captain's Table. Welcome to the Captain's Table, where we have intimate chats with those who have shaped Star Trek in words. My name's Michael, and with me this evening, we have a very special guest. I'd like to welcome to the Captain's Table, John Jackson Miller. Hi, John. Hey, how you doing? I'm really well, thank you. Um, thank you for coming on the show. It's great to have you here. Well, thanks very much. It's uh, it's it's great to uh, you know take this step into a, a new galaxy, so to speak. Well, it, definitely, and and I suppose Trek's not too far, far away, is it? Sorry. <laughs> no, and, and and it's not really a new galaxy for me. It, 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 you know, as as I've written a bit about uh, this, I actually was a uh, you know, the, the first stuff that I tried to write, uh, you know, for a tie-in universe was actually for Star Trek. Um, I you know long before I, I did you know some of the work that I'm you know probably most uh, you know people are most familiar with my Star Wars work you know, I, I did a, a short story that I sent uh, into strange new worlds uh, which was of course the uh, the uh, you know sort of the amateur uh, uh, you know, talent search. Uh, that uh, they had in the Star Trek novel some years back. And so uh, I, I wrote a piece. It didn't get through. And I actually, I know why it didn't get through. Uh, I, can, I can see now the problems with that story. You know, I had always wanted to write Star Trek. And even before I got any, any Star Wars uh, you know, prose writing work, I, I did actually get approved a story for uh, you know, Star Trek uh, SCE. Just uh, that was the that was the ebook series about the Corps of Engineers, uh, and unfortunately that series ended before uh, my uh, you know my story could come out uh, or actually even get written. But uh, it, you know it, it ended up being uh, another you know six seven years eight years before I got the chance to write Star Trek. Doing it now, absolutely having a blast with it. I'm enjoying it greatly. Oh, it's brilliant. And, and for the listeners, we're actually going to be talking about john's first star trek book and that's the titan story absent enemies and also john's going to have some news about his latest star trek book which is brilliant so we'll hear that in the show now for the listeners here's a little bit about john um john is the new york times best-selling author of star wars kenobi star wars knight errant star wars lost tribe of the sith the collected stories and 15 star wars graphic novels as well as overdraft the orion offensive a comics industry historian and analysis he has written for several franchises including conan iron man indiana jones mass effect and the simpsons he lives in wisconsin with his wife two children and far too many comic books now you can never have too many comic books john uh, yes, you can. If you, you have to have an engineer come out to look at the ceiling over your garage to make sure that the comics are not going to crash in on your car. I think we have something like fifty thousand at this point, and uh, you know the the ceiling of the garage is rated to seventeen thousand pounds. I hope that will be enough. Comics are very definitely heavy, but uh, you know that is that is another whole part of my career. And in fact, you know before I did any comics writing or or you know professionally or um, you know fiction. What I did was uh, I was the 
editor of the trade magazine for the comic book industry uh, in uh, in North America, and so that was uh, that was a job that I had for about ten years, uh, and that then led to me getting work. Uh, you know, my first comic book series uh, was at Marvel. I I, I you know, wrote Iron Man for a year, and that led to my writing Star Wars comics over at Dark Horse Comics, uh, and then it all sort of opened up from there. Uh, but I still do the uh, the comics uh, analysis bit, which uh, you know, of course you, you mentioned there in the opening. Uh, I as a hobby, I run a website called Comicron, which uh, is a comics history site, and you know we have sales figures for comics going on uh, all the way back to the 1960s on that site. Um, so it, it's uh, it's it's something where I'm able to actually participate in comics again as a hobby, as well as uh, as well as you know what it has uh, become over the years, which is a you know a full time job, both both writing comics and of course now writing fiction. I've mostly the last couple of years I've been writing uh, I've been writing uh, you know prose fiction full time. Would you ever write any Star Trek comics if that opportunity ever arose? I have talked with IDW on occasion. It's just a matter of the right project at the right time. Uh, the last year or so, I have been you know pretty much wall to wall busy uh, doing. Uh, you know, prose uh, you know, material. Both, uh, you know, in the last year, I had the uh, the Star uh, the Star Wars Kenobi novel come out, and also I had, as you mentioned there, my my own uh, book called Overdraft: The Orion Offensive, a, a science fiction story that uh, I think would be a lot of fun for uh, for Star Trek fans to uh, to dig into. Uh, and then, of course, uh, I, you know, I did uh, my first Star Trek uh, story, which was uh, which was the novella, the uh, you know, the Star Trek Titan absent enemy story. Uh, and then in the last uh, six months, I've I've written two novels, you know, back to back here. You know, one being, you know, the, the Star Wars novel I have coming out in September. And then the other one uh, being the Star Trek book that uh, you mentioned earlier that we'll get into later. Wow. So you have been really busy then. It, it, it has been uh, a marathon. <laughs> I, I, I'm getting good at uh, I'm getting good at being able to write long stretches at a time. So it, it's uh, uh, it, it, it's uh, yeah. The, the most common question people ask is which is more difficult, writing comics or or prose fiction, or which is more enjoyable. Uh, they both have strengths and and uh, of their own. And you know, I think I'll be trying to do some comics a change of pace in between my novels as I go forward. Oh, that sounds brilliant. Now, going back, you've obviously mentioned that you've loved comics and obviously you've got like over 50,000. Now, did that that started at an early age? So could you tell us when you when you decided, hey, I want to be a writer? Well, when I was uh, I I got my first comic book when I was six years old and uh, I started drawing my own at that same time. As I as I grew up as a comics collector, I was also all during that time. Uh, you know, drawing uh, my own. I had my own sort of publishing company, Miller Comics, uh, and of course, for the first couple of uh, first couple of years there, I was only doing one copy of each thing, uh, as kids will do. But once I got to uh, you know uh, junior high and into high school, uh, my parents got a photocopy machine, and so I was uh, I, I I discovered that there was this you know, sort of subculture out there. Uh, that were trading mini comics back and forth. Uh, these, you know, these photocopied comic books that people did, uh, and I had my own 
uh, you know, humor comic series and my own science fiction comic series where we would trade back and forth, uh, me and other people in the country, uh, you know, these, these copies of these things. It's where a lot of, uh, you know, creators that came along later in comics got started. The equivalent today would be web comics. Um, you know, we didn't have any way of publishing anything so that uh, everybody in the world could see it like, uh, like we do now. Uh, but yeah, I was I was doing that all the way through, even through college. Of course, once I got a job in the business uh, as a journalist covering the uh, the industry, I sort of let that go for uh, a few years. But it was good preparation uh, because when I did start writing my own comics, I, I I I don't draw anymore. I've been asked not to draw. I'm pretty bad at it. Uh, <laughs> once I started writing my own, I found it was very helpful uh, to have had that experience of trying to fit characters onto a page uh, and trying to, you know, detail a scene and show, you know, events happening. You know, the, the language of comics is kind of, uh, you know, unusual in that, uh, you know, we're, we're telling, uh, you know, the story that you might see in a movie, but it, we're only showing five or six slides, five or six shots at a time. Uh, and so you, know, you have to be very uh, careful in your descriptions of things uh, to make sure that things aren't confusing uh, so that the, the artist can understand what you're saying and to make sure that everything will fit on the page. Uh, you know, the greatest mistake that new comics writers uh, will do is not to look at uh, you know, a comic story from the position of the artist. You know, you'll end up jamming too many characters into a panel or too many events onto a page. It really is something where you know, as time goes on and you get more accustomed to it, uh, you really start thinking uh, as an artist would think, uh, the, the writer does. How is this scene going to play out? Uh, you know, What is the minimum number of pictures that I can put on a page that will get, the, get across the idea? On our um, sister pod, the holodeck, which is all about Star Trek comics, we, we've had quite a few... Uh, star trek writers on as in scott tipton jk woodward and and they've always spoke about how important the relationship between the artist and the writer is and uh, it sounds exactly like you're saying the same here and it just you've just got to think of how how the artist is going to draw this and and so have you found a comic question now sorry listeners so have you found in comics you've been reading the last few years that perhaps um it's become a bit too confusing in some comics and because there's too much going on in a panel. Well, one of the things that happened uh, over the course of the last uh, 20, 30 years, and again, this is this is one of the sorts of things I talk about on my Comicron website where we you know we discuss the history, uh, is that the the writer's toolbox has has gotten smaller. Uh, we used to have thought balloons, uh, you know, where you know the characters would have you know this bubble on the page that would uh, express what was in the character's mind. Uh, and in those days, you know, one of the purposes of, of, of that uh, was to help explain what was going on in the panel. Uh, you know, also narrator captions uh, would explain what was going on in the panel if, for example, the artist drew something that wasn't quite obvious, wasn't, you know, didn't, didn't carry the idea across. Well, what happened was that uh, really in the uh, in the 80s and and 90s, uh, the thought balloon fell out of favor, uh, partially because of Frank Miller, who uh, did not use them in his Batman comics. 
Uh, and so there was a stylistic reason that they fell out of favor. And also, it's kind of funny that it would have this effect, but in the early days of digital lettering of comics in the 1990s, uh, the software was not very good at drawing bubbles. <laughs> it was... <laughs> It was simply, you know, you could draw the ovals to put the words in. And if you look at the early days of digital lettering, the comics of the mid-90s, you know, you'll find these big, you know, oversized ovals drawn, not really, you know, fitting to the form of the words at all. Uh, but it, it, they just couldn't really do the bumpy thought balloons at all. And so that vanished. And uh, narrative captions sort of fell out of favor, too, because... We had, uh, you know, all these movies coming out, and of course there are no narrators usually in movies either, uh, you know, for, for comics. And so really it becomes entirely uh, the dialogue plus uh, the pictures on the page. That's all that, that can carry a scene. Uh, there are far, far fewer words in today's comics than there were 20, 30, 40 years ago. Uh, and uh, on the one hand, it makes it more possible for uh, the art to look better uh, because, you know, frequently in the old days, there wasn't room for the art. Uh, <laughs> there's so many words on the page. Uh, but at the same time, yeah, that drive does make it all the more important that the picture uh, put across the idea that's being described. And again, it makes your, your, makes your role as the writer more challenging as well. That's right. I mean, I, I have to make sure that I describe the characters that appear in a panel in the order in which they speak, for example. That's a very simple thing uh, that that uh, you wouldn't think is is something people would be concerned with. But, uh, you know, when, when three characters are speaking in a scene, you want the first person who speaks to be on the left-hand side of the panel. <laughs> it's, uh, it, it's, it's, a very, it's a very basic thing, but a, a lot of new writers don't necessarily you know, grasp that right at the beginning. Moving over to Star Wars. Now, as, as I mentioned at the beginning, um, you've written so much, whether it be graphic novels or, or prose of Star Wars. Tell us about your relationship with Star Wars. Well, uh, the, the first sort of grown-up comic book that I ever got was Star Wars number one. That was that uh, adaptation of the first Star Wars movie, uh, 1977. I was nine years old. Uh, I could not get in to see the movie yet because the lines uh, were so long. This was in the days where they didn't have multiplexes. So only one uh, you know, theater would have a copy of the film in one room. Uh, and so it was the movie was selling out, and I ended up getting to see uh, getting to read the entire story actually uh, in the comics before I saw the film. Uh, actually, the the Star Wars uh, novel Kenobi, which I just did, was dedicated to my sister, who made sure I got in to see the movie finally, <laughs> uh, uh, because it, it just had taken so long. That sort of uh, you know put into my mind this kinship between uh, Star Wars the movies and Star Wars the comics, and then later Star Wars the prose novels, because. Uh, right in that first year uh, after Star Wars came out, we had the Alan Dean Foster novel, uh, Splinter of the Mind's Eye, which was, at the time, we all assumed it would be the second Star Wars movie. Of course, that turned out not to be true. But that was sort of the first grown-up novel I ever read. Um, you know, I think I was 10 years old at the time. You know, Star Wars has been part of my life, uh, you know, on the you know, certainly as a, as a film, 
but it's also been uh, a part of my comics collecting and part of my my science fiction reading all this time because I've just followed along. And you know, it wasn't the first thing that I tried to write for uh, once uh, once I uh, you know did get uh, you did get out there. Uh, I, I ended up working for for Marvel first with uh, with Iron Man. But you know, getting the opportunity to sort of play in that sandbox that was uh, a dream come true. Now, episode seven is in production at the moment. Are you excited about this? And do you have any concerns? Because obviously a lot of Trekkies out there weren't very happy with how JJ rebooted Star Trek. I actually think it's brilliant. But um, what do you well, think? Well, <laughs> you know, the thing with episode seven is uh, I'm certainly uh, terrifically happy that there's going to be more movies uh, and more material coming out. When the when the uh, the third uh, prequel came out, it really was all on the the comics and the novels and the games and the video games to carry forward the Star Wars universe, uh, because there had been you know there wasn't going to be any more film material, and you know it was it was something where uh, you know it's it's good that we uh, have all of that, and certainly I I you know made a career of writing for those franchises, uh, you know write, writing for those uh, those works. But there is really no comparison to the number of people who will go see a movie. We're talking, you know, with a comic book, we're talking you know, tens of thousands of people will read it. Uh, with a novel, you know, tens of thousands to, you know, maybe at best hundreds of thousands will read it. Uh, you know, with a, something like a, a, a cartoon series, uh, an animated series like The Clone Wars, you know, you get into the millions that will be able to be exposed to it. But once you do a film, a feature, a feature film in the movie theater, now we're talking about tens of millions of people that are going to be exposed to the property. And I, I think it is important to sort of restock the pool, refresh the number of people that are interested, the number of enthusiasts. Uh, the films really are sort of the entry entry point for a whole lot of people to get into uh, the other things that we're doing, the sort of the expanded universe. I certainly uh, am very excited to see what's uh, what's coming. I don't have any more knowledge than anybody else does about <laughs> what's happening in episode seven. I am working on a particular portion of uh, you know this new uh, you know this new universe going forward. But you know it's one of those things where uh, it's very compartmentalized, uh, and you know episode seven is is a you know, sort of on a, a different sphere. You actually mentioned the expanded universe. Now, recently there was um, an announcement, a big shakeup of the expanded universe, which you mentioned that was set um, the events after Return of, well, actually, I say Return of the Jedi, but actually Revenge of the Sith, I should say. Could you tell us what that announcement was and how that affected you? And I believe you've got some news about a project you're working on now. Yeah, the uh, what what happened here basically is the presumption had always been that there after episode five there would be no new material coming out from the film side of things. You know, we we knew that uh, we knew that there was a possibility of a TV series coming along, and that was discussed for a while. But you know, the the thought was more or less that we in the you know licensing part of the world, the folks doing. Uh, the comics and the novels and so forth uh, had uh, more or less a free hand going forward where we weren't going to collide with any new continuity. Then when the, the Clone Wars cartoons came out, uh, we had a bit of a quandary for a while because the the way that you know film and television, 
the timetables for those uh, kinds of productions are are simply far far different than what we're able to do uh, in print. They can't really adapt to you know changes that we're doing, and we can't really adapt to changes that they're doing uh, on the fly. It, it it's something where you really need to sit down and plan it all out in advance. And the way that things had been done in the past, you know, I, I said compartmentalized. It was extremely compartmentalized. Everybody was off on their own, uh, you know, islands. It was integrated, however, by the fact that we had, you know, a fiction team at Lucasfilm and you know, a, a guy whose job was, you know, Leland Chi. His job is as, as the, the keeper of the holocron uh, to make sure that. You know, if a starship has a certain you know, dimensions in uh, that are mentioned in a comic book, that those dimensions are respected in a video game or you know anywhere else in the in the in the series. Uh, it, but when we're dealing with you know the the television and the film side of things, that just makes things a lot more complicated. And at some point, the decision was made that with the new movies coming out, they wanted to make sure that those creators of those movies had the most latitude possible to tell the best story they possibly could. And it was something where they simply decided it was better for them to take the existing movies, the the six movies and the TV series that had been done to date and take those as uh, the, you know, that's the main canon that has existed. That's the main, uh, that's the main uh, work on which they're going to base things. And what we would do on the uh, license side of things uh, is uh, something new. Uh, and this was what was announced back in April. Uh, the Lucasfilm Story Group has been developed where someone who's involved with the movies and the TV series and the the you know the the prose side of things the the comic side of things they have uh, they have a this the story group that plans out uh, everything that's going on before it all comes out uh, so air traffic control is not something which is done on the fly that was always the problem in the past where something would you know be going on over there on uh, in this medium. Uh, and you know we wouldn't have accounted for it yet over in comics or prose or uh, in these source books that are done, for example. Uh, this way, everything is is figured out up front. The project that I started working on uh, at the end of the fall it is a a Star Wars novel, hardcover novel set in the days of after the Empire is taken over, and it's in the days before the birth of the Rebellion. And it was the first book that, and it is the first book that is uh, a product of collaboration with the story group. It, it, and it will be coming out uh, in September, September 2nd, as a hardcover and an audiobook, and also uh, as an ebook as well. Uh, it is called Star Wars A New Dawn. I didn't realize when I wrote it that it would be the first, uh, you know, you know, the this, this starting point uh, of this, you know, new era for the prose. Uh, 
uh, books and, and other licensed books, but that is what it has turned out to be. It is a book that, uh, as I said, I, I worked with the Lucasfilm Story Group. It involves characters from the Star Wars Rebels TV series. Uh, the Rebels TV series is sort of the follow-on sequel series to the Clone Wars series. It will be airing uh, starting in September on uh, the Disney XD network uh, in the United States. I, I'm, I'm assuming it's going to be worldwide as well. With this novel, uh, you know, from the beginning, we had input from the story group and the executive producers of the TV series. That is, uh, you know, not completely unprecedented, but it is, it is uh, the way things are going to be going forward. Uh, it, it is, it's all been coordinated, so nothing in my book uh, will conflict at all with anything that's coming along in uh, the Rebels TV series or that follows along in Episode 7 or anything else like that. As they said in the press release when this came out, they did not discard the Expanded Universe it still exists under what's known as the Legends banner, uh, and all the old books are being reprinted, or not all the old books, but as new, as old books are being reprinted, they're under the Legends banner. The thing with Legends is they may or may not be true. Parts of them might be true, not all of them, uh, or they might be uh, they might be completely true. We just don't know. the The intention here is that they want to be able to draw from the past, from the existing books concepts and characters and things that they like uh, for use in uh, in these future projects. Uh, and it, with me writing my novel, I drew some things from previous works, but by, by my using them, I did not deem the fact that the earlier stories, you know, use these facts, you know, I did not, they, they have not been deemed in continuity in total. Uh, but, you know, I, there, there really isn't a good reason to have to invent uh, new dimensions for a Star Destroyer if that has already been established in a previous book. There's really no reason to invent a new kind of high explosive if, you know, there's already a high explosive that's already been established in a previous book. There's no reason to necessarily have to completely remake you know, a culture that's been established for a specific species if you know that's already been established in a way that works with the new stuff going forward so uh, when when this uh, you know before this news came out and while i was working on the uh, the novel you know they flew uh, me and uh, timothy zahn uh, who wrote the sort of the the, you know, the most important novel in the expanded universe the heir to the empire book that that sort of rebooted or not rebooted but re-enlivened uh, you know the star wars uh, you know prose uh, continuity uh, in in uh, the 90s they they flew both of us out to Lucasfilm to shoot a video uh, which uh, which came out the same day as the press release where we talk about the the uh, the expanded universe as it was and what the role will be going forward but yeah it, it is it is a it's a scary but exciting uh, project of Star Wars a new dawn it will be coming out uh, in uh, in September and uh, I'm hoping people will look forward to, to getting that so let's move over to Star Trek, if that's okay. Oh, sure. Um, <laughs> uh, I've been working on Star Trek nonstop for a couple of months now, so I, I'm, it's where my mind is. <laughs> so can you tell us about when you discovered Star Trek and what you like about it? 
I probably first saw Star Trek in the, it, it may well have been in the, uh, well, certainly I had seen the reruns uh, on TV uh, of the original series, but I think I may have also, uh, you know, very early on seen the, uh, you know, the animated series. Uh, you know, I remember having a puzzle from the animated series. I, I, I did get, uh, you know, the Marvel, some of the Marvel comics when it had the license. I, I was too young to get the, the gold key comics that had come out. You know, the ones that had the, the flame shooting out of the back of the nacelles of the Enterprise. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, was, I was too young to get those. But yeah, I did get some of the Marvel uh, comics. And then, of course, I, I got I got a lot of the, uh, the, the, the later comics. You know, Peter David, you know, the stuff that he did. I, I got a lot of that. Uh, and, you know, also on the comic side, you know, Dead of Honor, that was one of my favorite graphic novels uh, that came out much later. I got into Star Trek, you know, more deeply. Uh, a friend of mine uh, who actually consulted uh, on, uh, you know, some of the science for the for the most recent Star Wars novel I did, he uh, he did uh, a, a fanzine called Star Date Now uh, in in uh, in our high school, and it was one of those things where I think only only ten copies or something were printed, uh, but that was my access point into uh, you know Star Trek uh, fandom. And yeah, you know, that's 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 where I learned about uh, all of the uh, all of the uh, you know the other things that were out there, the the you know the guidebooks about uh, you know the the you know the blueprints of the uh, the Enterprise and everything like that. Uh, and then of course you know the movies uh, came on uh, came out and uh, and you know started appearing on cable TV with uh, with you know high frequency. And you know I have not missed one uh, you know since I think. Uh, I think uh, you know, three or four, and uh, I've I've really, you know, I, I've I've sort of you know been bilingual in that sense. Uh, that uh, that the the thing with Star Wars is, you know, all all the new material kind of fizzled out after 1983, uh, after Return of the Jedi. There was that lull there where there wasn't anybody, uh, you know, besides Marvel doing a few comics that it did afterward. And uh, later on, West End did its its role playing game material. There wasn't any new fiction for sure uh, on the Star Wars horizon, but I had all this Star Trek stuff that I was able to follow. And of course, you know, then we get to the late '80s and the Next Generation starts up, uh, and then it was you know nonstop for me from there. So, do you have a particular favorite series or character from any of the incarnations? Uh, you know, each each series is uh, is different. You know, the uh, you know the original series. I was a big McCoy fan. Uh, I I think that uh, I think that uh, he you know, really does sort of you know be he he's that balancing person that uh, that you know, sort of gives the uh, the series its uh, a lot of its humor uh, and a lot of its charm. You know, Next Generation. Uh, I'm a huge Riker fan, and that's why when I was given the chance by Margaret Clark to uh, write a, uh, a novella for uh, Star Trek uh, last year. Uh, she gave me the choice of what uh, what crew to use, and I really wanted to use Titan, uh, and uh, that's exactly what I did. You know, from the other series, uh, you know, I, I'm I probably would say uh, you know, I, I'm a bigger next gen fan than original series simply because I got to watch it while it was new. 
I got to watch it when it came out. I was one of the one of the funny things uh, that I found out uh, you know, years uh, years later here. The one of my favorite original series episodes, uh, uh, a piece of the action where they go down to the planet and they learn the rules for Fizzbin, and uh, you know, we get to see Vic Tayback and uh, you know, Bella Oxbix and all these characters. Uh, I found out that 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 episode first aired the night that I was born. <laughs> so that tells you how old I am, but it also says, you know, I really wasn't part of that, that, you know, that initial wave of fandom uh, of seeing that stuff when it came out. But, you know, I did see all the episodes of, of Next Gen and then DS9 and then Voyager, uh, you know, when they came out. By the time Enterprise comes out, that's when I'm starting to do my uh, my writing my, my comics writing and I was writing freelance at the time I, I still had my uh, my my day job uh, and that's when all my television viewing just collapsed at that point <laughs> because I was I was moonlighting at night and I just didn't see anything for five or six years uh, I have slowly been catching up on enterprise but uh, but certainly yeah there was there was a good 15 20 years there where I watched everything that was out. Moving over to um, your Titan story, which is Absent Enemies, you mentioned that Margaret approached you, and you've also mentioned that you were going to write for the Corps of Engineers. So did you feel this is about time that I did actually write a Star Trek book now? Well, it was uh, it was something I'd always wanted to do, and I I knew that because some changes were coming up on the Star Wars comic side of things, we didn't yet know for sure that Marvel was going to take over the comics license. Uh, but I, I had no, uh, I didn't have a comics project slated for the period right after I did the, uh, the Star Wars Kenobi novel. Uh, and so I was looking to pick up another project. I had talked with Ed Schlesinger uh, at Simon & Schuster Pocket Books uh, a few times before at, uh, at various conventions. So it was on the list of things where uh, we were aware of each other. I, I definitely wanted to do something, but I had to find the right time and they had to find the right project. They had these ebooks, these novellas, and that seemed to me like a perfect place to get my feet wet uh, and sort of, you know, learn the style of of writing. You know, again, just as with comics, there is a style to writing uh, in any given franchise. You know, I wrote Star Wars, I wrote Mass Effect comics, I wrote, you know, for various other science fiction franchises. Uh, but you know, simple things like what's capitalized and what's not, and you know how uh, how how the titles are spelled out and that sort of thing for the ships. You know, these are all uh, things that a writer has to internalize. You know, slowly as they're getting into a project. But I, I will say, and I've remarked about this before, it was a wonderful change of pace. Uh, as I started writing Star Trek to realize, as I was trying to get characters out of a jam, oh yeah, they've got a transporter. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have to, you know, it, it, you know one of the biggest problems with, uh, you know, with uh, writing some of the other uh, franchises, whether it's, you know, Star Wars or, uh, you know, Mass Effect, uh, which I did graphic novels for, or the uh, the Overdraft series, which is which is my own, uh, it's that last that last mile, that last few kilometers uh, between the ship and the ground are always something that you have to figure out a way to get the characters down there because half the time the spaceship can't land or something's going on or or you know a lot of the Star Wars ships aren't built so that they can land. They're just you know the wrong shape and size. 
uh, they don't make planet fall. And it's 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 wonderful to not have to constantly worry about airlocks and and you know shuttles. We have the shuttles, we have the runabouts, we have all of that, but we use them when we need them, and we use them when it doesn't stop the story to a grinding halt. <laughs> so uh, I I really uh, I really have uh, have enjoyed sort of uh, you know acclimating and getting getting into uh, getting into writing Star Trek not. Not uh, not simply being a fan of it, but uh, but being a producer of it. Now, before we talk about the story, could you give the listeners uh, a brief summary of what Absent Enemies is about, please? Yeah, Absent Enemies takes place in that very early period after the fall, which was the the group of novels that came out at the end of uh, 2013. William Riker is an admiral uh, at this point. He's he's been appointed to this position as sort of this Federation troubleshooter to go around and and deal with specific threats that have have arisen. Uh, And, of course, there's a diplomatic angle to it. It struck me that that would be something that would be fun to play with because, uh, you know, the... Certainly, there have been a lot of episodes of the TV series that that focused on diplomacy, and also focused on the fact that it's not really the the most fun thing for the uh, you know for the explorers aboard these starships to have to get involved with. It it also allowed me to deal a little bit with the possible tensions that arise between having uh, an admiral on a ship. Uh, as well as a captain uh, or, or you know, a commanding officer in the case of Christine Vale, you know, whose aims might not be identical to what the captain or the commander would want to do. You know, we have had so many you know episodes of the TV series where you know the the admiral uh, who's you know on the bridge is that he's at, you know working at cross purposes or or with uh, with what uh, Picard would want to do. And of course, then we go back to the Federation uh, ambassadors or the 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 the, uh, the Federation commissioners back in the original series, uh, who you know, whenever one of those guys set foot on the bridge, you knew that it was going to be a real pain in the neck for Kirk to have to deal with. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, now here's here's Riker who's been put into the role of the enemy. Uh, and so I wanted to do a story where you know he has he has that going on in his mind. I'm also putting in uh, in his face you know, a a particular problem. We, we we've had some more humorous single episodes of the TV series. You know the the things where events happen where you know, this is where you get the meme of the facepalm from, <laughs> <laughs> uh, where you know okay who are we dealing with here? Uh, I, I, I can't believe we have to deal with this. I decided that there was a springboard in a particular episode of uh, of the Next Generation that had not been followed up on, and I I I I, I saw that there was a good opportunity to use that and have it work into this sort of larger story I wanted to do. Uh, it is uh, I I don't I don't want to give away what episode it was because I think that's central to the premise of uh, what happens in it's central to the mystery of what happens in absent enemies but it, it really is something that where I approached it as a sequel to this earlier episode of next generation I also approached it as one of these sort of lighter uh, episodes that they would have in the run in between you know the big events uh, it struck me that since this story follows almost immediately after the events of the fall, that it was probably going to be time for a lighter story 
Uh, and and that's that's really the role that it plays. And, and, it, and it's a lot easier to do a lighter story uh, in a novella length as well. Uh, and so that's that's what we did with that. And, uh, you know, I'm I'm really uh, you know happy with how the fans uh, have, have reacted to it and embraced it uh, and overlooked a couple of errors that I had in there. as I, you know, scramble to make sure that I uh, get all the uh, get all the ranks and names and everything. Uh, the ranks completely right, because, of course, these things change from from you know, book to book in the series. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I think my my worst mistake uh, and I, I hope it's been corrected I can't I, I don't know if it's been corrected in the ebook or not but I remember on the last page I went to a lot of effort to try to make sure that I got the Baku and the Sona spelled correctly and <laughs> then I ended up transposing them and that's uh, that's no good at all so that's that's the characters from insurrection and that, and now I'm not even sure I spelled them correctly either but anyway uh, these things have all been corrected uh, for you know the the uh, you know the the new releases of the the ebooks uh that's my that's my uh, hope anyway and i'm buckling down on that to make sure that uh i'm i'm definitely checking on all that stuff uh you know the fans they just want everything to work they want everything to be consistent and connect and that's exactly what we want to now looking at the titan series and you've mentioned the fall as well did you go? Did you read the full series, or was you given a, a, a plot summary of the series, or did you actually go and read James Swallow's book about the Titan, his segment with the Titan? Uh, I'd read a number of the Titan books before, and I had been given an idea of what would be happening uh, in the fall books. Uh, I I do believe that I I got some uh, materials beforehand, but it, it yeah I think the I think the key here was. Uh, that, you know, Margaret was doing a lot of coordination on it and just making sure that I knew what the state of play was for everything. And the, the important uh, thing on my part was I, I tried to do a story which was not going to establish a lot that people would collide with. You know, one of the, one of the things about writing in a licensed universe is, uh, you know, I treat it like it's a national park. Uh, I try not to, uh, you know, leave it a mess. I, I, you know, they, they say when you're going in a national park, you, 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 you try to make sure you, uh, you take out everything that you take back in. You, you want to leave the universe in sort of an upright and locked position when you leave. There are certain changes that, yes, for dramatic purposes and for the growth of the characters you will make, but you don't want to go making changes willy-nilly just for the sake of leaving your thumbprints on the series. I try very hard not to do that. And and so, you know, for example, there's a particular phenomenon, scientific phenomenon, that gets explained in the uh, you know, Absent Enemies. I, I have the characters make it perfectly clear that you know, the explanation that we have here may or may not obtain elsewhere in the universe or in other, you know, parts of the Star Trek milieu. It may only be a this story only explanation. Uh, and I think that's really helpful to do because uh, otherwise you, you get into the problems like they were facing with Star Wars with the, uh, you know, the, the fact that there's just so much material that it becomes really difficult to research it all uh, as you're trying to tell stories going forward. Well, we we certainly felt that you captured the essence of the relationship Riker had with his former crew brilliantly throughout the story, and in particular, um, Christine Vell. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I I, I thought that was really good. And I know one of the other authors have said, uh, I might have been 
um, Dayton or David Mack that one of them have said that when they think of Christine Vell, no, in fact, it was James Swallow. In fact, sorry, it was oh. James. James actually said that when he sees Christine Vell, he imagines Katie Sackhoff from, oh, yeah. from, from Battlestar. And that, that's his no, version. That, no, that, that, that totally works for me. Uh, you know, I, I used, I used Vale and, uh, Tuvok and Riker as my three point of view characters in these things. I think it is critical for the new reader. And of course the, the new reader is the one who's, uh, going to be most likely to pick up these these shorter ebooks uh, that are out there that you know the sample uh, you know sort of the sample size thing. Yeah, I think it's critical for those readers to have uh, you know a TV character or a film character there as one or two of the point of view characters. They're the touchstones. They're the familiar road marks. They're the people whose voices are already known to us. Uh, but I think it's also important that these stories have as as uh, you know as uh, characters in important roles, uh, you know, the supporting cast, the ones that come from the prose side only, um, you know, so that people can get an introduction to them and it, uh, you know, the, so they can understand the relationships as they're they're going back and you know hopefully following the ebook to go sample some more of the uh the actual books of the series now you actually mentioned earlier that Riker stands out for you he's one of your favorite characters so when you took on the project obviously as you've mentioned Riker's now an admiral do you like where Riker Riker has gone as a character within the, within the book verse so to speak because obviously at the end of Nemesis he's just about to become captain of the titan and now he's a flag officer did you like that development was you surprised that he had become a flag officer well i, I was surprised by the development but i think it's a really cool idea uh I, because he is in in some respects a different kind of officer than picard is their their ambitions have always been slightly different if, if you go back and watch you know encounter at far point and their their first meeting you know, you, you definitely get the sense that Picard, his, uh, you know, his, to, to go back and paraphrase the line about Kirk, you know, his first best destiny is to captain a starship. I mean, that's 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 what he's there for. You know, making him an admiral uh, as with Kirk would be a waste of material. And of course, you know, I think Dayton ends up quoting that line at the end of at the end of peaceable kingdoms uh, that I think that might be in there from uh, there, there. There's a line somewhere where somebody picks up the line from generations where, you know, Kirk is saying, you know, don't let anybody ever take you out of that captain's chair. Riker has not had the captain's chair for anywhere nearly as long. He's got a, he's got a lot longer of a path in front of him. I think he's, he's a younger uh, officer. He, he could certainly go farther uh, and I, I don't think he had any idea that he would um, be uh, where he is uh, as of as of this point in the series. And I think that is a topic for some drama. I mean, that is that is something you can get something out of. And in the book that I'm writing now, I'm absolutely getting some drama out of it uh, because, uh, you know, this uh, this this novel that I have coming out at the beginning of 2015 uh, is is absolutely uh, dealing with uh, the Riker uh, Picard relationship. Oh, that sounds good. And hopefully we can get some more teases as we go on. I, I, as we mentioned, we really feel um, Cena and, and Roz and I feel that you captured Riker perfectly. And w one of those examples is um, 
when you actually say in the book, and I'll just quote it, but he wasn't just Will Riker anymore, nor was he just Enterprise or Titan. He was just the instrument and embodiment of the United Federation planets on this world. And while he might direct, had directed, would direct Starfleet officers to risk their lives, he had a duty to stay alive, to keep his away team alive, and to see Federation policy enacted. And throughout the story, we, we see him look at things from this point of view don't we where he's just not a captain anymore and i just thought the way the way you wrote that was fantastic it, it, well, thank you I, I we just really enjoyed it and it was great to see that development of Riker. i especially loved the line where you say when would the federation next order admiral Riker to do something captain Riker would never have considered i just thought that was a brilliant line and well, and and that becomes uh, that becomes a major thing in the new book that I have coming out. It 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 really does. Uh, the the thing with the the thing with it is uh, Star Trek is really useful. Uh, the 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 milieu that it has is really useful for dealing with military uh, issues uh, in a dramatic sense. Now, certainly there is a military structure in Star Wars, uh, multiple military structures in Star Wars. But with with Star Trek, because I think, you know, the the basic unit of the series has been, you know, a naval vessel, uh, a Starfleet naval vessel uh, for so long. And, you know, issues of rank, issues of duty uh, are central to uh, so many of the stories and and so many of the the characters and their outlooks in life uh, that you know I I'm able to go back and and look at examples from you know, Earth's history you know there you know Earth's history is replete with you know uh, uh, line officers that wound up having uh, wider commands. Uh, theater-wide commands. Uh, you know, Ulysses S. Grant in uh, in the United States Civil War. You know, uh, uh, General Eisenhower. Uh, once he has to take over uh, the entire uh, you know operations in uh, in the European theater. You know, these are these are people who previously you know were uh, commanding officers of other soldiers, uh, and now they have to you know think entirely on the big picture. Uh, and there's always a tension there. There's some people who just prefer to be at a different level of organization because they don't want to make those uh, they don't want to make those distinctions or they don't want to make those kinds of decisions. And and I, I think that that is uh, that is something which is fodder for uh, drama and for exploration. And uh, I really do enjoy uh, being able to you know tell these kinds of stories uh, in in Star Trek. And I think the the idea of Riker being this admiral is really interesting because you know it, I get to I get to look at his, his the tension between his relationship with the Federation and with the crews that he's with. And you know we're not just talking about Vale here, but uh, but Riker and uh, and Dax uh, Esri Dax, who's uh, commanding Aventine. You've actually mentioned in one of your blog posts, and I, and again for the listeners, we'll put the links up to your blog, and it's really good by the way. I really enjoyed reading it. You mentioned that you wanted Riker to encounter a diplomatic mission that drove Picard mad. Now, <laughs> did, did did you have a lot of fun writing this then? It was it was a lot of fun, and you know I I think it was it, it was a bit. Uh, it was a bit of a risk, a bit daring, I think, on my part to to 
have our first encounter with you know a, a an enterprise crew written by me to be in one of these facepalm sort of situations that but you know i i really do think that if you look back at the at the episodes there are quite a lot of these things where they're dealing with the pack leads or whatever the you know the, the, the crazy little aliens that uh, uh, that take over ships. There are episodes where you have that you know the, the Tribbles episodes, uh, the, <laughs> the, the the episodes which are lighter, uh, the the Harry Mud episodes. I mean the episodes which are not all about you know, complete preventing complete domination of of uh, the galaxy. You you simply can't have that happen every single time. It gets exhausting. Uh, and it gets harder and harder to come up with the you know you know the earth-shattering uh, you know device of the week. So I did enjoy to a great degree putting uh, you know these characters through the ringer to a degree uh, and uh, and having them uh, you know, deal with uh, you know some characters that you know otherwise they wouldn't want to have to. But when you're an admiral, when you're working for the Federation, sometimes you have to go through things you don't want to do. Now, within the story, we we do actually get some flashback scenes back to the days on the Enterprise D. Now, did you enjoy writing those? Because you, it's almost like you got the best of both worlds because you wrote about Riker in the sense that you love the character and we, we see him now. But you also get to play in the TNG series, Sandpit, so to speak. Well, that was uh, one of the fun things. Once I started studying the episode that uh, this is the sequel to, I realized that before the events of that episode, the uh, the crew was on its way to a planet, and that planet was uh, never uh, we never found out about what happened on that planet. It was a thread that was unfollowed. We never found out what happened next, and so I I asked uh, I asked uh, you know Margaret and uh, the folks at CBS, you know, can I can I hook on to this? And tell that you know unseen episode, uh, and uh, it turned out to be you know no problem. Let's do it, uh, and that became the uh, the you know the sort of scene setting, the stage setting for what Riker has to do. We're not going to mention the episode because we don't want to spoil it for the listeners, because uh, we want them to go and pick up the book now. It's a great episode, and we all agreed because we all wrote lots of notes about it that it's a brilliant, <laughs> it's a brilliant episode to choose from, and it's actually got one of my favorite characters in in that episode. Um, and I know who you're talking about, and I agree. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and we we just wanted to say that going back and and following up on that episode was was a, again a stroke of genius. And within the story, you do explain some plot holes that arose through this episode in question which was really good and it tied it all together now in your acknowledgement you mentioned that you spoke to christopher l bennett who helped with some of the science and the explanations now did you how did you speak to uh, chris was it all through email did you have skype calls and and um was well, it really great that you could go back and speak to other trek authors and and, and get their insights well i i, I actually had uh I didn't meet Chris until later. Uh, at uh, I, I think I met Chris at New York Comic Con this last year. I I, I hope I'm not misremembering. Uh, where I actually got Chris's explanation for this was in the Tor blog that Keith DeCandido does, uh, where he does his you know re re uh, you know rewatch of the series. Uh, he had put out his theories for how this particular thing worked, and he had also written about it uh, briefly in one of his other books. 
And so, you know, that's what I drew from. Uh, and I, I tried to keep fairly close to what he had in mind there uh, while, you know, adapting it a little bit for what I needed uh, in my story. But again, as I say, I tried to, you know, couch it in terms such that it's not necessarily the case that my way is the only way. That, that what I'm describing here is the way that this particular thing works always. And so, yeah, I, but as far as talking with other authors, uh, you know, I, I, I've been doing that quite a bit. Uh, you know, I, uh, met, uh, I met, uh, I met, uh, Dayton Ward and, uh, uh, Kevin Dilmore out at, uh, at a convention in Colorado a couple of weeks ago, uh, or actually it's about four or five weeks ago now, which was really cool. I got my photo taken with, uh, with Nichelle Nichols. That was, uh, that was thrilling. Uh, I, <laughs> I, uh, I, I got, uh, uh, and I, I've I've actually talked uh, quite a bit here with uh, with James Swallow about the book that I'm doing now because uh, he's uh, working in the future even ahead of me uh, in, in terms of uh, what's coming out. And uh, you know I've I've been friends with you know Peter David and Christy Golden and other folks that have written in Star Trek uh, you know for a very long time. And uh, I've really, you know, I've I've I have really valued, uh, you know, the sort of knowledge that they've been able to share about working in this world. So you've you've mentioned quite a few times now we we have a new Star Trek novel coming out at the beginning of next year. Can can you tell us anything else about it? Now you, you've obviously given us a few hints that Riker's going to be there, the Avatime's going to be there. It looks like Picard's going to be there too. Can you tell us anything else and how far you are with that story now? Uh, yeah, I actually am finishing that novel this week, uh, and I believe that uh, the uh, we're we're within days of the you know the ordering links for it going live out there. Uh, I will go ahead and and uh, break some news here, which is it's already sort of out there because it, the name has been on a website uh, at some point. But uh, the the novel is uh, called Star Trek: The Next Generation Takedown. And it uh, it does indeed uh, f- feature Jean-Luc Picard and Enterprise uh, investigating uh, this uh, this episode that's happened, this seeming rampage uh, that's uh, that's uh, taken place, where uh, a number of targets have been struck, and I won't tell you whose targets or how, uh, but he discovers in the process the involvement of Admiral Riker, who is uh, currently on Aventine. He's transferred his flag there, uh, which is captained by, of course, Esri Dax. And this sets up a uh, conundrum. <laughs> and and uh, because Riker uh, cannot necessarily tell uh, Picard everything that he uh, is supposed to be doing, you know, because of uh, because of his rank and other things. And of course, uh, Picard, uh, at the same time, uh, has obligations to uh, the Federation and to the peace uh, himself. And uh, we wind up with uh, a, a a battle of uh, wills. We wind up with a chase uh, because you know it, it's possible for two people to be on the same side and not necessarily to agree about the means. And that's all I can tell you. <laughs> but, I, 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 but this should let you know that this is uh, it, it. It was originally you know mentioned as an Aventine book, and it definitely is. Uh, but it's also an enterprise book, and uh, you know the Titan is involved too. 
uh, and I uh, I think that uh, it is uh, it is a, it is a book that yeah if you if you've heard some of the things that I've described I'm interested in exploring earlier in this uh, in this podcast uh, this gives me the opportunity to sort of write these issues large and really dig into them. Oh, it sounds really, really exciting. And just by your enthusiasm, we can tell it sounds like you've had a great time writing this story. I have. And, you know, I have had on my uh, 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 next to my desk here, I have I, I've uh, you know, razored out the, the pages of the Star Trek uh, you know, the star maps book, the Atlas book, so that I can know exactly where everything is, uh, because I want to make sure that, uh, you know, when I, uh, get into this story, uh, well, I have gotten into the story that, uh, you know, I've got, you know, the details down, uh, cause I know those are important to people and they're important to me too. Uh, it, it really is, uh, you know, a, a, a I, I hope people will consider it kind of a cracking naval adventure. Uh, you know, one of my one of my uh, you know, favorite authors uh, of the 80s uh, was Tom Clancy with all of his naval novels. Uh, you know, there, there, were, you know, there are quite a few of them. Uh, and, uh, I, I think that, uh, and, and of course I, I go back to, uh, to being a, a, a huge fan of, uh, you know, Horatio Hornblower and, uh, you know, the CS Forrester books, uh, and, uh, and also, uh, the Patrick O'Brien novels, uh, you know, the, you know, the master and commander novels. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I wanted to tell what is in this, uh, an almost entirely naval story, uh, you know, a, a space naval adventure. So, I mean, if, if people are, are thinking that the, this, there's going to be a lot of, you know, diplomacy or whatever involved just because Riker is this admiral and he's in this role, uh, no, this is a very, very active book. Sounds brilliant. And as, and as you've mentioned, it's going to be early next year, early 2015? Yes, uh, it, I believe the release date is January 27th. That is the current, uh, that's the current release uh, information. And as I say, uh, you know, we will see this information coming out should start propagating on uh, websites uh, in the next uh, few uh, few weeks here. We had a couple of questions just about your writing in general, if that's okay. And sure. you, you actually have a master's in politics. Now, how has that helped you with your writing? And I could imagine that certainly where, where you've had that sort of political intrigue, that you've been able to fall back on that. Well, I, uh, I have what we jokingly say is the last Soviet studies master's degree offered in this country. Uh, I was uh, actually in a doctoral program uh, to study the Soviet Union. What happened was I, I, I went off to a, the Russian Language Immersion Institute in, uh, at Indiana University for the summer uh, in preparation for getting my uh, application together to go over to Moscow and gather up all the goods that I needed to work on my dissertation. And while I was driving home, uh, the, uh, the, the coup d'etat happened and Gorbachev was uh, you know, arrested uh, down in his, uh, down in his uh, dacha. By the time the coup was over, the Soviet Union had collapsed. Uh, so everything, uh, everything that I was working on was gone. You know, the, the joke that I've said is that the Soviet Union collapsed on my dissertation. Uh, 
I, I ended up taking uh, I just taking this international relations, uh, uh, you know, master's degree and just quitting at that point and going off to, uh, you know, become a journalist uh, because it, it struck me that there was no way in the world that I was going to be able to study, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, that country and what was going on there as an academic while everything was up in the air. Where it came in handy uh, was much later when I uh, had to propose my first comic series to uh, to Marvel. Uh, I offered to do a, a series based on the Crimson Dynamo. Uh, the Crimson Dynamo being the sort of Russian version of Iron Man. Uh, his his origin story had been rooted back in the early 1960s, and uh, I updated it so that it made sense uh, in the context of. Uh, you know, uh, Glasnost and uh, the fall of the Soviet Union and what had, what had come after it. And so my Crimson Dynamo series, which was sort of my demo reel, the first thing that I did, uh, it, uh, it was, uh, it was you know, more or less intended to be the first Russian superhero uh, comic. And uh, a lot of stuff that's in there is, is you know, very, you know, very, I, I hope, true to life or accurate. Uh, you know, I ended up doing some... You know, writing some Cyrillic signs by hand that we ended up scanning in and putting into the into the the uh, uh, into the uh, into the story. Uh, we had a, a an I, an artist uh, who on the uh, the first few issues he he had lived in Russia for a year. So you know, I, I I think even way back then I was striving to try and be accurate with some of this stuff. Some of the authors we've spoke to, like David Mack, etc., they have certain routines. There's a, for example, with David, there's a piece of music from the film Inception he loves to listen to when he needs to get into a, a certain type of mood for a particular part of the if story. Is there or are there any routines that you, you do before writing or during writing? Well, I, I can't work with music. I, I end up, uh, I, I actually... Uh, when my children are home for the for the uh, for the summer, I, I actually have these uh, these uh, soundproof headphones that I put on, and uh, it makes me look like I'm on an airport tarmac. Uh, <laughs> it's having these things on. It's 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 kind of foolish looking. Uh, but what I do have, I have the Star Trek. Uh, right now, I have the Star Trek micro machines out on my desk. The you know, the little the uh, the little uh, I guess Galoob made them. The uh, the little Enterprise. Uh, the, uh, the 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 little shuttle. The, you know, the the Romulan warbird, the Klingon bird of prey. I've got these all uh, scattered out here. You know, obviously, if I really want to show a, a, an interstellar thing, uh, a battle or something like that, and I need to realize in my mind where ships are with relationship to each other, uh, just having these things to you know, fool around with is not is not a bad thing to have. So yeah, I, I, I guess that's that's my that's my mood uh, thing, and and it, 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 to the extent that when I started this novel, I cleared my desk of all of the Star Wars action figures and all. Of the, <laughs> uh, it's really like clearing the decks, and they'll come out again. Everything will come out again when I'm uh, I'm 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 not working on it. But I uh, I try to to the extent possible, I try not to hop between uh, the milieus that I'm in, the worlds that I'm in. Uh, that is one of the problems or challenges of working in comics, uh, because comics are monthly. You always have copy coming back at you every month to look at or to review or to review the, the review the photos or some, or the, the, the not the photos but review the, review the artwork. 
you know, it becomes very easy to break the mood that you're in. And you know, what am I working on this week? Am I am I in Conan? Am I, and I, am I doing Simpsons? Am I doing Mass Effect? Uh, yeah, that's that's something which is an occupational hazard of doing comics. Writing novels, though, uh, you know, it's much easier for you to immerse yourself uh, in that particular sandbox. Uh, for as long as you need, two months, three months, or however long it is. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I've been, yeah, I've been awash in my Star Trek memorabilia for the last couple of months here. You, you've mentioned a few projects you've got in the pipeline now: the new Star Trek book, the new Star Wars book. Have you got any other projects on the go at the moment or coming soon? You can tell the listeners about. Well, I do have a an extension story to the uh, you know I, again I have this this series called Overdraft the uh, called Overdraft. Uh, it is it is uh, my own uh, story about uh, it's set in the 22nd century. It's uh, it's a uh, th- there are a lot of humorous elements to it, but what what it basically is is I've taken uh, I've taken the age of uh, sail uh, and the, the whole East India Company uh, you know sort of commerce uh, structure, and I've I've written that large to a, a, a an interstellar. Uh, you, you know, way of doing things. Earth has uh, sort of uh, Earth has discovered that there's uh, there there is life in the stars, and that uh, uh, that the uh, galaxy is open for business. There is a very uh, active uh, trading community that's out there, and wherever trading communities develop, there are uh, there are uh, people who are going to try and cut corners and. Uh, and uh, you know, make a shady buck. Uh, and the uh, the main character of uh, of Overdraft is uh, a uh, a stock trader. He's an interstellar stock trader who, from his desktop uh, in the solar system here, manages to bankrupt his interstellar expedition. Uh, it's completely by accident. Uh, but uh, you know, he's he's sort of like you know the London Whale or one of those guys like that, or the the, the kid with the bearings bank that it just got completely out of his control. Um, and uh, rather than go into unemployment, uh, the uh, the mercenaries, the armored mercenaries with the space expedition, they come back to Earth and they grab him and they say, "You're going to come back with us to the most dangerous markets that we can find in uh, on the stellar frontier, uh, and, and as as our lead trading officer and." you're going to get our money back one planet at a time and that's what uh, that's what overdraft is the uh, the orion offensive is uh, is the first novel length book that i did it was actually released as a as a serial uh, on kindle last year uh, but it is now collected and it's available out there and in fact until the end of this month at least in in the united states uh, it is uh, it's half price uh, on amazon uh, as part of a promotion that they're doing uh, I have a, uh, a a short story prequel that's uh, out there that's uh, available on Amazon as well. And the thing that I have coming up new for it, there's a another prequel short story that is appearing in a uh, a anthology that comes out later this summer uh, called Apollo's Daughters. Uh, and that uh, that's an anthology that has work by Michael Stackpole and me and a number of other you know familiar names uh, that uh, should be out there. And uh, and so I have that. I do intend to do some more work in that universe. And, uh, you know, I'd like to do more work for uh, for Star Wars and for Star Trek. And I'd like to do some comics. Uh, it's uh, uh, and, and I intend to. Uh, it's uh, just this is all that's uh, been announced at this point. 
Well, it sounds like there's a, there's certainly a lot to keep us going to at the moment. Now, for for our listeners, how can they find out more about you? Are you on social media? I am. Uh, people can find me on uh, Twitter at JJM Faraway. Uh, on Facebook, it's simply uh, Facebook slash John Jackson Miller. Uh, my website is the thing that I think is going to be interesting to people going forward. Uh, farawaypress.com. I have on there a behind-the-scenes page on every book that I've ever written, every comic I've ever written, every short story that I've ever written, every game I've ever been uh, involved with the design of. And I have not yet gotten my notes, my production notes, for uh, Absent Enemies up there. I was waiting until I got done with uh, you know, the takedown novel. But once, uh, once that's done, I'll have those up there. And I have, I have always done lots of uh, you know, notes and trivia uh, about uh, about the books that I've done uh, up there, uh, it's it's pretty much like the DVD extras, sort of the you know the the, the commentary to a degree, uh, you know the thought the things that I think people would be interested in about how we came up with the ideas for things. Oh, that's brilliant! And for the listeners, we'll put all those links up on the show notes as well, so you can find out more about John. So thank you so much for your time this evening, John. We we've really enjoyed having you on the captain's table. We've really enjoyed talking about absent enemies and we can't wait to read the new novel in the new year and hopefully you'll come back and join us to talk about that i'll be happy to michael i really appreciate this oh brilliant thank you so much for coming on all right thanks a lot thanks for joining us at the captain's table and don't forget to turn the page for our next adventure you've been listening to the captain's table If you're ready, I will uh, crack on, as we like to say in the UK. Uh, okay. Oh, brilliant. So, okay. Let me just have a swig of tea. Sorry, you can tell how British I am. Let me have a swig of tea. Sorry. Well, yes, and I, I'm really sorry for what's happened to your football team. <laughs> it's, oh. It's, it's, it's completely wrong that the United States should still be alive at this point. <laughs> uh, t- to be honest, um, our football team's been in a state for many, many years, so... Okay. It was just no surprise, unfortunately. We'll, we'll get over it. It's just wrong. I mean, it's like when the Russians were winning basketball. It, uh, it's not. Yeah. Uh, it's not. <laughs> anyway, we've won one game. That's all. So anyway, we'll, well see how it goes. Well, it's one more than us. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. So I don't know. But the only good thing is now all the England merchandise is going to be half price quite quickly. So it's time. To, <laughs> it, it's it's time to it's time to buy it now for the next championship in 2016. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> oh, dear.